This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Chile is changing. Maybe. That is, another world is possible in Chile. Possibly. Mobilizations by feminists and the indigenous since 2019 led to a plebiscite in October of 2020 to draw up a new constitution. This has been an uprising against neoliberalism, against racism, against sexism, against the human rights violations by the police and military, which tried to crush protests during state of emergency lockdowns in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. It has also been against the legacy of the Pinochet regime and the vestiges of that brutal dictatorship, which was eventually indicted for human rights violations. In May, the people of Chile voted on who the delegates would be to the Constitutional Convention, while the establishment political parties on the right, center, left and left all hoped they could guide this process. It was progressive independents unaffiliated with any establishment party and their indigenous partners that won the day. Now an indigenous Mapuche woman is the convention's president and her introductory speech to the convention was something never seen before in Chilean politics. The Mapuche have been at the center of the protests and uprisings and together with feminism have found common ground in many areas where that intersectionality was until recently invisible. We'll return to Chile's three years of mass mobilizations in a few when we will be speaking with writer Bree Busk, author of the Roar magazine article defending the legacy of Chile's uprising. Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. Bree currently practices her politics through her neighborhood assembly and the Brigada Laura Rodig, a feminist art and propaganda group that intervenes in public space through direct action. This is Bree's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. She was on most recently back in October of last year to talk with us shortly after Chile's vote to rewrite the Constitution about her then just posted article also at Roar magazine, Chileans mobilize in advance of a historic plebiscite. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz it's tuesday so producing must be egon Shile. Shile, egon how was your labor day weekend uh i met an owl <laughs> <laughs> did you have to make an appointment or just random meeting you know it came to me uh my the the woman who owns the building i live in threw herself a labor day slash birthday party okay and um uh the folks who um uh, what is that? Anyway, she knows some folks who do like petting zoos, and so okay. there was a sloth, there was a chinchilla, <laughs> there was an owl. It was, a, it was a whole rip roar in afternoon. Now you can't pet an owl, but could you pet the chinchilla and the sloth? Yes, and they were so soft. <laughs> they were so soft. <laughs> My downstairs neighbor used to have a chinchilla, and they are soft, and they also stink like ferrets. Yeah, they they definitely stink like death. So. <laughs> My weekend was wonderful and bizarre. I officiated my first wedding as requested by the bride, my niece, and as an ordained minister in the Universal Life Church, as well as a high priest in the Church of the Subgenius. And everything went well until this one minor mistake. So what I was supposed to say to the bride and groom is, your wedding rings are special. They enhance who you are. But instead, I said, your wedding rings are special. They enforce who you are. 
<laughs> I quickly corrected myself, but who knows? Maybe that's how I feel subconsciously about marriage and it just slipped out. Or because it's one of those words I say a lot on This Is Hell, and there's a lot of hell and all kinds of enforcement right now. Maybe it, that was the reason it slipped out. Either way, she was happy. That's all that matters. More importantly than any of that. Egon, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is... What were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to the listeners who did show their support over the weekend. Thanks to Ron W. in Chicago, Omar H. in Gainesville, Florida, Mark M. in Evergreen Park, Illinois, and thanks to Kate M. in Carlton, Victoria, Australia. Thanks, Ron, Omar, Mark, and Kate. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show. That's tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner on a short week due to Labor Day weekend. Egon will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Bree on Chile and their constitutional convention. Again, the question from hell is is what were you going to do with all your surplus value be honest what were you going to do with all your surplus value be honest brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and egon has this week's hangover cure Sure do. Um, do I? I'm sure you do. I sent it to you on like Thursday though. Maybe. Yes, you did. It was a while ago. There it is. All right. This week's hangover cure is you're going to love this, Chuck. Cherries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With our apologies, we are again citing the website of the Dreadful Parade magazine, which ran an article with the headline, Rough Morning. Here are the 15 best foods to eat when you're hungover. The story cites Roxana Esani, hopefully I got her name right, who is a registered dietitian nutritionist, a board-certified sports dietitian, and describes herself as a national media spokesperson, whatever the hell that is. I have no idea what that position is. Well, she's got a few, so I mean, she's just playing, I think, uh, you know, job name jumble over here. (laughs) I think so, too. Um, In any case, Esani is quoted saying, and I quote, after a night of drinking, People may also experience poor sleep and sleep interruptions. Cherries can provide the body with melatonin, which is known as the sleep hormone, and can help a person experience a more restful sleep the following day. Alcohol also can increase inflammation in the body. Cherries have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant properties, which not only can help reduce alcohol-induced inflammation, but also promote overall health as well. This makes this week's Hangover Cure cherries. And please never waste any of your precious time on Earth reading Parade Magazine. (laughs) This has been a public service announcement from your friends at This Is Hell. Oh, what a friendly announcement and warning that is. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, This Is Hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which streams live at 10 a.m. every Friday morning as podcast shortly after at the same place 
patreon.com slash this is hell on our most recent podcast following our conversation last week with disability scholar and activist keith rosenthal on his specter journal article carceral histories of disability and abolitionist analysis i got real real angry all over again about how the disabled are treated by society, how we are discriminated against, how we are stored away in hospitals or institutions or prisons as non-contributors to capitalism who have been determined to be a burden. It reminded me of so much that I've experienced as a disabled person, the way in which we cannot get access to jobs without lying about our disability, the fact that we have to pay just as much for our college education as able-bodied people, but then we enter the workplace to get those higher-paying jobs, supposedly higher-paying jobs, and we're excluded due to our perceived disability. And more than anything, the extent to which we often cannot find a way to care for ourselves with any kind of dignity without supplementing disability benefits with, let's just say, work within the informal economy. Yeah, being disabled sucks and being proud of a disability, which I'm told to do by so many, only obfuscates the institutional bigotry toward the disabled. Following that angry monologue, we were supposed to be playing a 2004 interview with the late Louis Proyect, who uh, passed away in late August. Louis has, had been on the show 17 years earlier to have a discussion on Nicaragua, which was critical of Daniel Ortega and would have been very timely considering yesterday's front page story on Nicaragua in the New York Times. However, as we rebuild our archives, we are realizing there are a few interviews missing from our over 25-year archive, and sadly, Lewis's, as of right now, is one of the missing interviews. So instead, we followed up the previous Patreon podcast classic interview from December 2001 with Tamina Faryal of the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Af Afghanistan with not one but two more interviews with a different Rawa representative, Sahar Saba, one from 2002 and the other conversation from 2004. You've probably been reading and hearing a lot in the U.S. media about how we should be listening to the women of Afghanistan at this crucial moment as the Taliban returned to power. Well, we were doing that back in 2001. The problem with that sentiment of how we should be listening to women in Afghanistan is the United States government only uses these women as props to promote the allegedly humanitarian projects of the United States. If you actually do talk to the women of Afghanistan, like Tamina and Sahar, they will tell you that unlike claims by the U.S., the Northern Alliance were in no way the good guys back in 2001, and that if they were to take power back in 2001 with U.S. assistance, as they essentially did, they would be installing a corrupt band of criminals who had no interest in women's rights other than as a performance for propaganda to promote their new allies whose support they desperately needed to hold on to power and definitely were no fans of true democracy. But you can only hear how much capitalism creates the concept of being disabled and how much it sucks and what Afghan women have been saying for the past 20 years, make that 40 years, by subscribing to the weekly Patreon podcast for of This Is Hell that streams live every Friday and is podcast after, shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. We also got a guest suggestion sent to us at Chuck at This Is Hell.com from Jamie, who writes, Dear Chuck, thank you for your determination to grind through all kinds of hardships to make sure that we, your listening audience, continues to expand and deepen our understanding of the multitudinous interconnected dimensions of the hell that we live in and god help us participate in and help perpetuate simply by trying to live our lives with every interview you show that dante dante had it wrong 
Hell isn't made up of descending circles of pain and despair, but is more like a spider web of violence and exploitation. Understanding this hell may not relieve the pain or even relieve us of having to make painful choices on a daily basis, but it is critical to being able to start cutting those threads and working together to extricate ourselves from that web of injustice that you explore and expose. Now, I could swear I wrote to you several months ago to suggest a guest. The thing is, I can find no evidence that I ever wrote or sent you that message, and I'm left wondering whether it's my brain or my computer that's betraying my trust, and it's really bugging me. In any event, I still think that you should get Max Haven on the show to talk about his recent book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts, which you can find at maxhaven.com slash revengecapitalism, where he argues that this economic vengeance helps us explain the culture and politics of revenge we see in society more broadly. Moving from the history of colonialism and its continuing effects today, he examines the opioid crisis in the United States, the growth of surplus populations worldwide, and unpacks the central paradigm of unpayable debts, both as reparations owed and as a methodology of oppression. I should add that while Max is a family friend, he's also fecking brilliant, fecking brilliant, and extremely articulate. I think he'd make a great guest for This Is Hell. Then in July, I heard Tanvi Misra quoting Harsha Walia uh, extensively in talking about the hidden complexity of migration and illegal immigration and thought that Harsha would also be a great guest, talking about her new book, Border and Rule, Global Migration, Capital and the rise of racist nationalism. As the blurb says, Harsha disrupts easy explanations for the migrant and refugee crises, instead showing them to be the inevitable outcomes of conquest, capitalist globalization, and climate change generating mass dispossession worldwide. She is righteous and ferocious, and I think you and your listeners would love her. Love to the whole crew, Jamie. Jamie, both Max and Harsha are on the guest list, and when we confirm our conversations with them, we will let everyone know. Also, Max has already been on the show at least twice, and I believe he's been on three times. And you can find those interviews with Max by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Haven. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. Also, it was kind of weird when we got this email from Jamie about Harshawalia's border and rule because I just moments earlier finished a review, finished reading a review of Harsha's book at Protean Magazine's website, which you can find at proteanmag.com. So synchronicity, kismet, whatever you want to call it. But when that happens, it's a sign that the universe is telling you, have this guest on the show. So we are efforting, and I hate the word efforting, both Max and Harsha now. Thank you again, Jamie, for your guest suggestions. Coming up, Chile's uprising has led to a continuous or contentious constitutional convention. We'll also have This Week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what were you doing with all your surplus value? Be honest. What were you doing with all your surplus value? Be honest. A listener also sent what they thought uh, this week's question from hell should be instead. We also received our first piece of art for the art show on the day we rescheduled our anniversary party for next year. And we'll tell you who is on the show for the rest of this week. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell with the pandemic raging and the Chilean government exploiting the crisis to crack down on dissent during a state of emergency. The people rose up and demanded that the Constitution, a leftover from the Pinochet dictatorship that enforces neoliberalism, finally needed to be challenged and rewritten. With feminists and the indigenous leading the call, that process is now moving forward 
and not all of Chile is happy about it. Here to get us caught up on the fight over Chile's future returning to This Is Hell. Writer Bree Busk is author of the Roar magazine article, Defending the Legacy of Chile's 2019 Uprising. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Bree. Uh, it is my pleasure to be back. It's great to have you back on the show. You write that on July 5th, after a tumultuous morning, both inside and outside the former National Congress building, the inaugural meeting of Chile's Constitutional Convention carried out its first act, electing Elisa Lancon Antileo as its president. Lancon, an indigenous delegate representing the Mapuche people, made uh, history as she addressed the assembly first in her indigenous in her native tongue and later in Spanish. What is the significance for people here in the United States who don't understand that? What is the significance of the president of the convention, the first to speak, being Mapuche, delivering the first speech in their native tongue before doing so in Spanish? What kind of message does that send or what kind of message was that intended to send to the public when it comes to what they can expect with the convention and the constitution it will create? Well, I would say that the intended message is that uh, the indigenous peoples of this territory were not going to be sidelined in this process. In the current constitution, as you mentioned, written uh, under the Pinochet dictatorship, uh, indigenous peoples aren't even mentioned, let alone their rights uh, being protected in any way. So uh, Loncon, in many aspects of her speech and in her choice to speak in her first language, it was a uh, affirmation of what she and others wanted to see in this uh, process, that we would be developing a new constitution in which Native peoples would not only receive recognition, but uh, protection of their rights and ability to have language rights, for example, and Lincoln has been an advocate specifically of language rights, meaning that indigenous people should be able to speak their first language, not only in the privacy of their homes, but in all public areas. And that topic has been defended in the constitutional process thus far, with uh, native delegates demanding to be able to speak in their first language and not have to speak in Spanish if that is not their preference. So how democratic was the delegation election process? How democratic was the process in electing the president? Because I could see how the opposition would make claims, as the opposition often does, that this was not done in a democratic way, that there's somehow the vote totals weren't correct, somehow this was corrupt in some way. So how democratic was the, uh, the delegation election process? Ooh, that's a deep question. I would say that it's not as democratic as anyone wants it to be in general. This is not the constitutional process that was requested in the revolt, right? In the context of the uprising, we wanted a constituent assembly from below. And what we got was a compromise offered by uh, a desperate establishment. And within that process, we have pushed for the highest level of democracy and democratic practices possible, but we have found many walls. I would say the election is possible, right? The transparent voting of the delegates within the election, right? So in that case, I would say that it was fair and transparent, but that doesn't mean the right-wing delegates are happy about it. They did not get what they wanted in that case. So has there, how, how would you describe the backlash by conservatives against there being such a presence of the indigenous or women playing a role in writing the new constitution? How much, how intense has the backlash been? 
Well, you know, I think the backlash has been uh, a much longer process that started, I would say, from when the right was defeated during the plebiscite back uh, last year in October, because they keep having to reformulate their plan based on their new you know, uh, position and level of political capital, which has just been vanishing with every change of events. So uh, right now, their current tactic is uh, basically uh, throwing fits uh, in the convention, fighting over everything, trying to get uh, headlines by making uh, mean or racist comments about the indigenous delegates, like, their goal is to basically turn it into a circus so the process will lose credibility in the eyes of the public. And they are working on that full time, 24-7. Every time there's a sm the smallest opportunity for a scandal, they shout it from the rooftops. And that's what you have to do when you don't have the traditional type of power and representation you know, through a democratic process. So how successful have they been at that? How is the media reacting to all these claims of scandals trying to derail the Constitutional Convention? I mean, I think that they've been pretty successful. I mean, I think that people were already primed to be a little skeptical of any sort of represent, uh, representative process. You know, like people want to do things for themselves. And even though many of the delegates are representing people in I would say at, on a deeper level than we would expect from, say, like politicians in Congress. I think that there's still a feeling of distance between the average person and the processes of the convention. So I don't think it takes too much for people to start doubting it or to think that their time is being wasted or it's just business as usual, even when that's not the case. So I think the right wing really benefits from that kind of atmosphere of uh, mistrust. You mentioned how the Mapuche flag has become a powerful symbol of the uprising uh, that shook the country in October of 2019. Why? Why is the Mapuche flag such a powerful symbol, even for those who are not Mapuche? Why isn't this just people being offended at cultural appropriation, which you often hear? Yeah, that's a good question, actually. Well, I think um, I don't know if I know 100 percent of the answer to that, because I think it's a long story. But I would say that historically, uh, you know, maybe the first battle of this territory was the battle against uh, colonialism, right? Between the indigenous peoples trying to protect and defend their land and uh, Spanish colonizers and then colonizers from other countries eventually. And I think maybe that's the oldest struggle this territory has. And not everyone in the country now is Mapuche, but a significant number of people are Mapuche descendants if not Mapuche themselves. So I feel like people feel a kind of a deeper connection to that history of resistance. And that um, in moments where people are rising up against something larger, you cannot forget that uh, anti-colonial, uh, pro-Indigenous history and context that we all live within. 
So uh, you also mentioned uh, Lang Cohn, the president of the Constitutional Convention, how she did not take the stage alone. At her side stood Makai, Francisca, Lincoln now, a Mapuche uh, spiritual authority and former political prisoner who was also elected to one of the delegate seats set aside for indigenous people. Uh, they have a long history as a fierce advocate for indigenous rights and the protection of the natural environment as been and it was seen as a likely candidate for the convention presidency. What were the politics for which Lincoln now was in prison? Because I thought that might reflect upon why she was standing at the side of Lancon. Yeah, that's actually a really uh, relevant point to bring up. So uh, she is a machi, which means she is a spiritual authority within Mapuche communities. And she was a political prisoner because she was accused in a very famous uh, case here in Chile. I think it was uh, mid 2000s, 2013. I'm not sure about the precise dates, but basically there has been um, armed struggle in the south of the country in traditional Mapuche territories for a long time with different periods of heightened activity uh, in these conflicts between um, landowners and farmers there and like Mapuche groups, not all Mapuche, but some organizations, right? Uh, There has been armed conflict there has been a conflict between some Mapuches and the military there. And there's been a lot of like arson as a tactic, for example, burning uh, trucks or machinery belonging to some of the extractive industries there that are, you know, taking over and destroying the natural environment, which has both a concrete material impact on uh, Mapuche people, as well as like, of course, a deep spiritual impact since they have that connection to the land. So uh, the case was called the Luxinger Makai case. And in that case, uh, an older uh, married couple uh, died in when their house was um, burnt down through arson. And the case dragged on for a long time, but basically, um, some people were implicated in that, one of them being another Machi, Machi uh, Celestino Cordova, who was found guilty as participating in it, although he continues to declare his innocence. Right? Uh, Machi Linko now was accused extensively, but what eventually was uh, not found to be guilty of participating in that. However, even though she is, was found innocent, in the context of the convention, some of the right-wing delegates she was guilty, and even though, even by the own their own system, she was found not to be. So it's that case has become kind of a symbol of like anti-Mapuche hatred and an like a way of saying, oh look, uh, these indigenous people are all criminals and terrorists, and this is what they do. And it's completely outside of the context of and history of what that struggle has been in that region. So is Lancone's pre- presence a, a potential vulnerability for the Constitutional Convention movement? Oh, no. Lancone okay. is a strength. And I would say uh, so is uh, Machi Linko now. That's, I think that's, they're that's, both that's what, that's what I'm really, asking. yeah, both of them. They are really powerful leaders. And they both have a degree of grace, even under really terrible circumstances. And 
attacks, right? They've received threats on their lives, racist threats, uh, misogynist threats. In fact, uh, there was a recent report saying that uh, women delegates in the convention have a really high degree of violent online harassment and have received like threats of violence as well. So that's a major factor at the moment. So if such a thing was happening here in the States, I'm pretty, you're probably pretty aware of what would happen. White nativists would likely be claiming they're victims of some culture war being written out of what they would allege to be revisionist history. Is Chile experiencing any kind of white victimhood claims right now? Uh, yeah, I don't know if we would call it white victimhood, but I would say uh, the right wing is definitely uh, salty about uh, the indigenous representation and inclusion within it. You know, it's like the classic quote, like, if you are privileged, equality feels oppressive. And I think that's definitely what they are experiencing right now. You also mentioned that Lancon's uh, was a message of unity and hope, encouraging all of us to believe in the dream of another Chile free of domination. However, neither the delegates elected to make this dream a reality nor the protesters still in the streets demanding justice for the brutality inflicted during the revolt had any illusions about what lay ahead. Establishment politics was already reasserting control over the political life of the country and the convention itself was set to be a battlefield where every session might reveal a new configuration of forces. What is the likelihood that establishment politics will win out and what happens to the process if they do? Because so often we just, you know, want to return to the old normal and tolerate the old politics because they, what seemed intolerable suddenly doesn't seem intolerable anymore. Things just daily life just grinds on. So what is the likelihood that establishment politics will just win out again? I mean, it's possible. It really is. Uh, There are a lot of really different outcomes that we could see, you know, in the next couple of years. I think that in my opinion, this constitutional process is not going to fix anything or at least not everything. We may be able to see some improvements, but if we, you could you still need uh, to undo these systems. You could put it in the document, but to what degree are, for example, all of the major industries of this country going to cooperate with a constitution that says that uh, the era of mega privatization is over? You know, like, I think that it's, even if we manage to get a very progressive constitution, a radical new constitution, the enforcement is going to be difficult because it wasn't the result of a truly popular process. And I don't know to what degree people are going to feel like it's theirs. They may like what is in it, but I don't know if they're going to feel like they were the ones who made it, right? And that could be a real factor, right? About the legitimacy of it. And of course, the right wing is hammering away on that as hard as they can. Um, Also, you know, we have a lot of elections going on right now this year. Um, We have our presidential elections in November. Depending on the outcome of the constitutional process, we might end up having a second presidential election, you know, under new rules in like uh, one year or in less than the normal term would be. So we might have a president for a very short time. 
So it's like um, there are different layers of politics that are happening, the politics of the streets, the politics of the convention, and then the establishment politics, you know, of congressional and presidential elections. And yeah, it's it's different. We are not in, living in the Chile of uh, 2019 or even the beginning of 2020. The election this year happens on November 21st, and Chileans will be voting on a president to serve a four-year term, 27 of 50 members of the Senate to serve an eight-year term in the National Congress, the full 155 members of the Chamber of Deputies to serve a four-year term in the National Congress, and the full 302 members of the regional boards to serve a four-year term. You also write that although the election of constitutional delegates was at the top of everyone's mind, there were also municipal and regional elections to consider, not to mention the parliamentary and and presidential elections scheduled for November. This is much friendlier terrain for the country's establishment political parties who are eagerly searching for a path back to power. Why is this much friendlier terrain for the establishment? Why might the political momentum behind the protests and the plebiscite not necessarily translate to parliamentary and presidential elections in November? Well, um, something I think that a lot of people living in the U.S. will understand is like, uh, you know, the kind of populism that comes from not particularly liking any of the parties in power, right? So you have those kind of swing Trump Bernie voters. You know, I think here we have something of a similar phenomenon where people are really disenfranchised with um, the... I don't know the current options like people do not see like a truly popular left party that could be like the vehicle for some of the hopes and dreams that came out of the revolt. Um, I think there was definitely a moment where the Communist Party was able to like lay claim to a little bit of that momentum, uh, especially in the context of their presidential candidate, which was uh, uh, Daniel Hadwe, but Hadwe was beaten out by uh, Gabriel Boric, who was, uh, yes, a leftist, yes, with a similar program to Hadwe, for example, but he also has a lot of baggage. He's seen as someone who kind of goes any way the wind blows and would be possibly more in the tradition of the establishment parties who participate in a power sharing agreement after the dictatorship, basically preserving a lot of the, for example, the neoliberal economic policies and playing nice with the right. So he got a ton of votes in his primary and it, he very well may end up being president. So it's an interesting tension where on one hand he represents like exactly what people said that they didn't want but he is also pretty far left in comparison with the other options, right? So it's like people's desires are kind of being expressed in an interesting and at times contradictory way. And you're right that going into 2021, the right wing has been sagging under the weight of an unpopular president. The left wing parties were doing marginally better, but the protesters were still making them pay for their various betrayals in the midst of the revolts, betrayals by left wing parties. How were even left wing parties betraying the protesters in the streets? Oh, well, uh, conveniently, I just mentioned uh, Boric. Boric is um, 
a member of the Frente Amplio coalition, and he was one of the people who signed the agreement to start the constitutional process in November, the second month of the revolt. And it was kind of like presented as a compromise, like, hey, everyone calm down, we'll give you a process, but on our terms. So many people who were still on the street demanding something more popular saw uh, the participation of left-wing parties or individuals in the drafting and signing of that agreement as, I don't know, as being traitors, traitors to the, the spirit of the revolt through that. Um, in the period after that, there were a number of sort of, I would say, repressive uh, bills proposed in Congress basically about cracking down on uh, forms of protests that involve property destruction. Like for example, um, making a barricade in the street, especially if that barricade happens to be on fire, which is a great Chilean tradition, which everyone should respect. Uh, but yes, the fact that um, the Frente Amplio and you know some of its members kind of, they played a kind of, uh, I don't know, some word games about it, but essentially they signed their names to some of these measures. And again, at a time where people were getting brutally repressed in the streets, that seemed like a terrible betrayal. And it still does to many people. Were they fearing some appearance of being soft on crime? Was this a concession to maybe the spin that the right was doing in the media about fears of you know, threats to law and order? You know, I can't say that I know what was going on inside their heads. They've tried to explain it away a million times in a lot of different ways. But I don't know. They thought that there was some political advantage to it at the time. And they they certainly haven't enjoyed the consequences of it. Uh, if you want a spicy little story, uh, Gabriel Boric went to uh, Santiago Uno, which is one of the major prisons where prisoners of the revolt, political prisoners, are being held. And he went there uh, apparently to visit one prisoner or to have some sort of conversation. It's like a, um, an event during his campaign. And he was maybe not attacked, but uh, roughed up by some of the political prisoners who said, how dare you come here, right, when we are suffering because of some of your political choices. So clearly people have not forgotten or forgiven those votes, even though it happened quite some time ago now. You mentioned the populism of this being an uprising against all political parties. Why do you think this uprising against all parties? Why do you think the popularity of all of the parties seems to be waning, except for, it seems, the, the Communist Party is doing pretty well? Yeah, well, it's all relative, right? I suppose they're not doing so well now. But, um, well, uh, basically on the right, you know, we have everything from Pinochetistas, people who are literally part of the dictatorship, you know, who have maintained seats in Congress ever since. Um, then we have like the kind of the maybe the right wing that kind of has the emphasis on economics and maybe tries to uh, sweep the fascist part under the rug a bit. And then on the left, uh, we have a lot of center left parties that basically made a deal at the end of the dictatorship to kind of move things on into a democratic transition. But that 
many will say that that transition was never completed, that Chile was never able to reach real democracy. And so those parties that have kind of kept some things as they are, for example, the constitution itself, right? And the policies enshrined within it, particularly the neoliberal economic model and a certain degree of like concentration of power in the executive, I would say, like those things have been maintained under socialist presidents in this country. And also we've seen left-wing governments, again, socialist governments, um, participate in the same type of uh, repression of social movements that you would expect from the right wing. So in that way, people really think like all of these parties are invested in the current system that is causing active harm to the majority of the country, right? So this is, as you're just pointing out, this is an uprising against neoliberalism and the institutional institutionalization of neoliberalism within the Chilean constitution. You also mentioned earlier how this is an uprising against settler colonialism. Is an uprising against settler colonialism an uprising against neoliberalism? Is an uprising against neoliberalism uh, uh, an uprising against settler colonialism? Uh, what does that reveal to us, that relationship between the two about what is taking place right now in Chile? Well, yeah, I think it's interesting because there were a lot of people who felt identified uh, with the uprising when it occurred. People who, I don't know, from all parts of the country with really different experiences. Like we even had like, for example, some maybe some comfortable middle-class uh, city dwelling leftists who felt like, yeah, we maybe we want to be more like Norway. And then you have some other people who are like, burn it down, all of it, right? You had quite a scope of people who found something in that moment. And I've heard some people say like, that the desire wasn't necessarily for one particular outcome. The desire was to destroy what was, right? And I think that was something that people could identify with from all these different perspectives, from the idea of like destroying uh, the, like Chile as a colonial state and perpetrator of state terrorism against its peoples, right? But I don't know, people brought a lot of different things to it and it tapped into something that brought all these different groups together and those groups and movements that had a history of mobilization and struggle, of course, like uh, the organized indigenous resistance, they were able to expand their voice in that space and to remind all the other people who maybe hadn't been thinking about the indigenous struggle or the Mapuche struggle in particular, that, you know, okay, I, we see that you're angry now. Think that we've been angry for 300 years. And people were receptive to that. People who weren't already thinking that way saw the connection and were able to kind of act in solidarity with each other through that. So did they increase then in state violence against non-Indigenous protesters? Did that finally reveal to those non-Indigenous protesters, 
oh, hey, I guess the indigenous have been victims of state violence this whole time. How long, I mean, how much did that uh, make visible the kind of state punishment that other people who are not white haven't been experiencing in Chile? Well, I think that uh, that's something that a lot of people understood intellectually, right? But not, uh, you know, if we're talking about the activist left, I think people absolutely knew it, but they didn't know what it felt like necessarily, right? Because during uh, the revolt, we had the military deployed. Like, uh, in my life, I personally had never seen, like, military vehicles rolling down the street. Like, but that's the reality for a lot of people uh, living in indigenous territory is that they have to live with that level of perpetual militarization all the time. And of course, extrajudicial killings on the part of the military or special police units. And like people had perhaps had a taste of that. You know, it's not like the average uh, protester in Santiago doesn't know anything about repression, right? Because the police here are pretty aggressive. But the idea of having that as the daily reality, feeling like you are in military occupied territory, that was something that for younger people who hadn't lived under the dictatorship, like that was maybe a new experience for them. You write that in the years prior to the revolt, the feminist movement had rallied around anti-neoliberal slogans and woven together students, workers, pensioners, and migrants into powerful networks. What is it about feminism that specifically opposes neoliberalism? Well, I wish that feminism as a whole inherently opposed uh, neoliberalism, <laughs> but I would say that isn't necessarily true. But I would say the current wave of feminist movement activity in Chile that you can kind of argue about when it started, but I would say maybe in uh, 2016, 2015, um, the analysis was always there that we, our main condition that we were all living under was neoliberal capitalism. And victim, uh, like we share the experience of patriarchal violence uh, on the individual level, but also on the systemic level. And the feminist analysis that kind of framed that moment was that women and people of other marginalized genders are the ones who are most exploited under neoliberalism. For example, like uh, take our pension system, right? We have a privatized pension system here. Uh, women are much more likely to work in the home and not have formal income or to work in the informal industry in general. Like for example, as like a mobile street vendor. That means that they are not paying into a their privatized retirement plan, meaning that if they are for example, in an unsafe relationship, one where they experience violence or abuse, they can't leave that because they have an economic dependency, especially in their old age. Or if they don't have a partner, they might be totally out of luck, right? And have to work, you know, until the last moment. You could also see that in, um, yeah, basically it's like the conditions created by neoliberalism exacerbate the misery of women and people of marginalized gen uh, genders in particular. And that became a way of kind of uniting struggles under 
feminism because people could experience like they could relate to that experience in that analysis, for example, in the privatized education system through student debt, um, in uh, ancestral Mapuche territories where uh, extractive industries are allowed to like take what they want, right? So it was a way of uniting people very broadly under feminism while maintaining that critique. So you also point out that feminism proved to have a catalytic effect on social movement activity as a whole, all while avoiding co-option by the uh, mainstream political establishment. In many ways, the character and political orientation of the current feminist wave prefigured the revolt itself. So why has feminism, at least so far, proven able to avoid co-optation by establishment politics? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to say, basically, that sentence is the thesis for the new piece I'm working on. So (laughs) be ready for that one. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, well, I think that's a long story. It deserves a whole article. But (laughs) I would say that a lot of it is uh, avoiding a culture of celebrity, right? Because even though like the organized parts of the movements will have, for example, spokespeople, there is not a culture of having leaders, right? The leader is not the one making the decision. The person who is in front of the camera is a spokesperson who is carrying the words that were collectively decided on within whatever body they are representing. And to have that kind of structure is really important, right? And also to have these spokespeople rotate Right. So one face doesn't become overly associated with the movement. Right? Uh, also, I would say uh, we really benefit from not being in a country that is saturated with nonprofits like in the U.S. Right. There isn't this sort of like strong pressure to institutionalize everything. So people know what it's like to be part of a group or social movement organization that isn't controlled by some sort of outside foundation or force that controls funding and messaging, right? It also gives people like in these movements, a certain degree of adaptability and flexibility, right? Uh, To respond to the changing politics of the day, right? You're not tied to the strategy of last year if it's not serving you anymore. So I would say absence of formal permanent leadership, um, a commitment to kind of internal democracy, uh, humility when it comes to building relationships and alliances with other groups. All of these things have been able to kind of allow the movement to continue, not without problems, but without becoming just like another buzzword for people running for Congress. How much does the media expect that kind of celebrity from feminism, from this movement? To what degree does this become, uh, you know, what they're doing, which I believe is the correct thing to be doing to not have a leader in this movement, to have a a movement that's more, you know, direct democracy. To what degree do you think the media is trying to impose a leadership style on it and a celebrity style on it for their own purposes? Well, I would say that there's definitely more of that around the Constitutional Convention, right? Because some delegates are people who were put forward by political parties, right? 
and uh, consequently elected. But we also have the social movements list of candidates, well, now delegates, who were proposed through democratic processes within movement organizations. So for example, in uh, the March 8th Feminist Coordinating Committee, of which I'm a part, we had an internal dis uh, discussion around proposing feminist candidates. However, the idea was not to turn our comrades into politicians or into celebrities, but to have a basically a vehicle for our feminist program within the convention. And that was a, I don't know, a, a controversial decision. Like some people really didn't have that level of trust in the convention from the get-go. But in the end, we decided it was worth the gamble of kind of having an entrance into the process. But our delegates who were elected, right, they, you know, are on TV, are interviewed all the time. And I think that perhaps maybe it's not something that's imposed, but the media is much more comfortable interacting with these types of formal representatives, elected officials, than broader social movements as a whole. And you write the collaborations between the Mapuche and feminist struggles are still at an early stage, largely due to the narrow and academic way feminism has often been practiced. What do you mean by the narrow and academic way that feminism has often been practiced? I think that's something that um, people all over the world can identify with is like this kind of narrow definition of feminism, where it's something that you go to the university to learn about and you have to read like Judith Butler and know all of these kind of complex theories and you know that is a type of feminism but that is not the type of feminism that we are trying to build here in chile and that's difficult right to build a feminism or people some people say feminisms right like a maybe a mosaic of feminisms that allow for different practices like for example like maybe a Mapuche woman is going to have her own vision of what liberation for women or the fight against patriarchy. She might have one that is rooted in her own culture and her experience. And that might be different from someone coming from a different culture or even a different part of the country. So our challenge within the movement was to find a way of building bridges between all of these communities of people who want to participate in the fight against patriarchy, who need to participate, you know, for their own survival and their ability to thrive and live the lives that they deserve. But we need to find a way to bring us all together without erasing our differences or imposing a narrow structure. And that is a big project, but it's a project worth doing. And I think that we have made progress on that to have an inclusive, but strong feminism. So I would assume that Mapuche feminism is strengthening that feminism. Are, are the Mapuche guided by femi feminism any more or less than the non-indigenous? Oh, well, I, I would say it depends on the person, but definitely there are uh, Mapuche women's organizations and they are ones who have uh, collaborated with other um, feminist organizations, right? And some have joined them, right? But I would say it's like 
you know, I think this is probably true in all parts of the world, but that like, if you are an indigenous person, that is such an important frame for your existence that being an indigenous woman is probably always going to be significantly different than being a non-indigenous woman. Right. So maybe they're, they're always going to have to have their own space to talk about and develop their own perspective on things within the larger movement. But I think the idea is to keep the conversations open, to keep, uh, to keep alive a mainstream movement that centers indigenous rights. Right? A feminist movement that does not see like indigenous rights as like a, a little box to check on a to-do list, but as something like integral to it. Just two more questions for you, I promise, Bree. So you write clearly the social movement left is having a moment in the Constitutional Convention, making an outsized impact on the proceedings and keeping the right in check. However, the internal machinations of the process appear distant and impenetrable for many who had staked their hopes on a new constitution in the midst of the revolt. So is the social movement left then in any way politically naive to the point that they could be outmaneuvered by more experienced politicians who have a better grasp of how to manipulate the political workings of the state? Um, I wouldn't say that they are naive. I think that they are quite savvy, but it's like the frame of the convention has a lot of limitations on what is possible, right? And basically every day, right? The candidates who are hoping for a more transformative constitution, like they have to have a battle over every single little point, every committee, every administrative factor. And it's intense and it's difficult to follow. Like I try to read what's going on every single day. And even for me, it's hard to follow what they're doing. And I would say right now, the main battle is around trying to further democratize the process through a number of different measures, but basically trying to increase in any way possible the level of uh, popular um, participation in the convention. But and I think that's in response to that feeling that that door is closing right? That through these little administrative maneuverings and lost votes, that this process is going to be kind of more and more distance from, you know, basically any sort of deeper form of democratic participation. And Chile was one of the very first laboratories for neoliberalism. So, I mean, I'm watching it because watching the situation in Chile because I want to see what it looks like, the process of deprivatization, of ending neoliberalism. What is the template that's going to be needed? So, you know, Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative. So we can actually have an alternative. That's why what's happening in Chile right now, to me, is incredibly fascinating. We've been speaking with writer Bree Busk, author of the Roar magazine article, Defending the Legacy of Chile's 2019 Uprising. Bree is an American anarchist living and working in Santiago, Chile. She currently practices her politics through her neighborhood assembly and the Brigada Laura Rodig, a feminist 
art and propaganda group that intervenes in public space through direct action. This is Bree's fourth appearance here on This Is Hell. You can find all of our conversations with Bree by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Busk. One last question for you, Bree, and as you may or may not remember, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, in the midst of the mobilizations, Mapuche flags bloomed like wildflowers, demonstrating how this age old struggle for liberation was intertwined with the one that was just waking up. First the protests and eventually the convention itself would serve as vehicles for pursuing the dreams of a plurinational state in which the country's indigenous peoples could enjoy sovereignty, cultural recognition, and the full protection of their rights. Can the state of Chile survive indigenous sovereignty, cultural recognition, and the full protection of their threats, or th- of their rights. Is the right making this out as some existential threat to Chile? Ooh, the answer to the first question is to, will it survive? Uh, I hope not, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I don't know, perhaps that's a, too big of a dream to hold on to right now. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, is the right making this out. Is the right making this out to being some existential threat to the existence of Chile? Uh, certainly, they have been. I don't know if they've convinced everyone. I don't think people are afraid of a new constitution, but I do think that they maybe their expectations are low. Maybe they're afraid. I think the biggest fear is that it will not change. The biggest fear is the continuation of this reality that people have said is unacceptable. When do you think your next article is going to be out at Roar? Uh, one month. All right. So we'll be looking for it. And when it does come out, we'll be sharing it with everybody online. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really enjoy our conversations, Bree, even when Thank they're you. interrupted Thank by you. technical difficulties. <laughs> All right. Take care. Have a great week. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If what you just heard from Bree Busk on feminism in Chile and the fight against neoliberalism and the fight against settler colonialism, if that made you angry, sad, gave you anxiety, was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have held in the past, or maybe made you feel more educated or realize that yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all of the many ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell. Remember without you we got nothing. So thanks for your support. Online right now you can see our trucker's cap, our winter hat, our t-shirts, our tote bags, our coffee mugs, all of our stuff that you can get right there by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Egon, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how are our listeners answering the question from hell so far? Chuck, this week's question from hell is what were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. Uh, and our answers, our listener answers today, we've got Emily M., whose avatar is a cat, who has <laughs> decided to either eat it or feed it to my cat. All right. Dan K. has decided soy boy futures. Nice. 
you know, got to get got to get your investment strategy sure. in with that surplus value. Sure. Uh, again, this week's question from hell. What were you going to do with all your surplus value? Uh, Greg M declares bidets for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> One of the weirdest House Hunters episodes I ever saw was a woman saying that uh, my only requirement is that the house does not have a bidet. Does not. Does not. Okay. All right. So I guess every home is okay for you because, what, 99.9% of homes don't have bidets? Yeah, I mean, I guess it it must uh, somehow poison the rest of the house if there was everyone in there. No idea. Um, This week's question from hell, what were you going to do with all your surplus value? Uh, Adam A., says most work is worthless anyway so what difference does it make (laughs) and now that's the optimism i like to hear from this is hell listeners that's right fabio l says hire other people at a reduced wage (laughs) to do all my work and live off their sir oh boy Isn't that the truth? That is true. Laddie Scott O says, I'm soaking in it now. <laughs> nice. And uh, I'll give you one more. Uh, what, what were you going to do with all your surplus value? Jeremy T says, and I don't know, is the car for kids, is that a national ad campaign or <laughs> yes, a local it is. one? It okay. Is. So you'll all get this one out there. Jeremy T says, you know, cars for kids? Well, say hello to lap dances for laborers. Oh, nice. Have you seen the Christian version of Cars for Kids yet? You mean Cars for Kids isn't Christian already? No, it's a Jewish organization, and so these Christians came up with with one called Jalopies for Jesus. And I've seen the ad once, and you're not going to believe this because I hate those Cars for Kids commercials. It's not as good as of a commercial. Wow. Well, you know, is... it's jalopies for Jesus just isn't as catchy as, No, you know. no. Cars for kids. You're getting probably a good car. Jalopies for Jesus sounds like you're getting crap. <laughs> crap for Christ. We will have more of your <laughs> answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Yes, yeah, uh, crap is spelled C-H-R-A-P just to get the consonants going. Again, the question for, or alliteration, uh, again, the question from hell is, what were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. What were you going to do with all your surplus value? Be honest. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us or you can email it to us. But we have to have your response by the end of tomorrow's show when Richard will be reading the rest of your responses and we will be announcing this week's winner. By the way, when I did officiate this wedding over the weekend, I was kind of reaffirmed in our decision to not have the 25th anniversary party this year and delay it until next year because at this wedding they had 80 RSVPs so they had food for 80 people they were expecting 80 people at the minimum they thought that there were going to be additional people who may be showing up as well but less than 50 showed up just more than half the people showed up and I I don't think they were disappointed in any way it was a really fantastic wedding they were very happy everybody had a really great time but I mean 30 people decided not to come to this wedding at the last minute and most likely all of them due to their fears over the delta variant so i think we made the right decision about not having our party this year about delaying it delaying our 25th anniversary party until our 26th anniversary in 2022 so uh yeah i just don't think anybody would have showed up anyway so 
pretty happy that we made the decision that we made. Do we have Bree back on the line yet, Egon? We're still working on it. Give me one second. All right. Please take your time. And uh, also, at this wedding, you may have heard last week that I broke my toe. And it's not, it's my pinky toe. It's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is tape it up to the toe next to your other toe, and hopefully it'll be straightened out and the swelling will go down. So when you're officiating your first wedding, it probably doesn't help to be standing up on a broken toe in dress shoes that you've worn maybe four times in the 20 years that you've owned the dress shoes. And so you're reminded about how painful the dress shoes are, especially when one of your toes is like the size of a little smoky. <laughs> looks kind of like one too, if you know what that disgusting kind of sausage is. And uh, so yeah, it was painful. My knees were knocking because I was nervous. I started tearing up at the very beginning because my niece is getting married, you know, it was very emotional. Uh, but somehow I struggled through it, except for, unfortunately, using the word enforce. How a wedding ring enforces your love instead of what I was supposed to say, how a wedding ring was supposed to <laughs> enhances your love. Just a slight mistake. I'm sure it wasn't Freudian or in any way subconsciously truthful in the way I feel about marriage. I'm sure it wasn't that because I don't put my views on marriage, my own personal views on marriage. I don't apply those to other people's lives. If that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. It's just not something that I'm all that into. Still working on Brie, it looks like. Let's see anything else that I could be sharing with you at this time. Uh, let me tell you what uh, we got from a listener about what the question from hell should be this week. Jeff C. sent a suggestion for the question from hell for, for this week. Jeff writes, this week's question from hell should be, what is Chuck doing with his free time since his workload has been cut by shortening the sh week to the, the shows to three shows a week instead of four? So as I told Jeff, we're still doing four hours of content every week. It's just that now we're doing four hours in three days and three shows instead of over four shows. It's definitely more exhausting on show days than it was during our previous schedule because shows are now 80 minutes long instead of 60. But it also allows me to consider the guest material for a much longer period of time on Mondays and Tuesdays and on Thursdays and Fridays as well. Jeff replied, writing, but I thought you would have had a couple of hours free of free time as you have one less interview, thus less prep work and reading. I'm always amazed at how much reading a blind guy gets through in a week. I was hoping you would get to spend a few more hours with your girlfriend or whatever you want to do with your few extra hours, which makes sense, except that the interviews are a bit longer, which are more in-depth, and there's a lot more writing for me to do. So in the end, Jeff... It really is just about the exact same amount of work, which is really weird, despite the fact that we're doing only three shows instead of four. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Egon and Jess and Rich, Richard and Alex do, oh, well, you might not be that interested in technical challenging times like right now, but 
I'm telling you, it's a great job. Email me at chocolatethisishell.com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me at chocolatethisishell.com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Thursday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do the show a couple of times a month, we can work within your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a very modest stipend, so keep that in mind. If you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we are also seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely. Stuff that can be done no matter if you live in London or Laos. You too can be part of This Is Hell, the This Is Hell crew, wherever you live. For instance, every time we post a show online and add our site, we include a uh, poll quote from the interview to give visitors a little taste of what they can expect when they listen. And that's the kind of work that you can do remotely. It doesn't matter where you live. Again, if you are interested in becoming a producer or working with us remotely or working with us right here in the studio, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on September 6th, 1913, 108 years ago, yesterday, Monday, at the Harlem Prism Farm, a financially lucrative plantation. Those are three words I don't like to hear in a row. Worked by convict labor in the Houston suburb of Richmond, Texas. The guards took aside 12 African-American inmates and subjected them to discipline for not picking cotton fast enough. As their punishment, all 12 men were forced into what was known as the, quote, dark cell, unquote, a box slightly over nine feet long, seven feet wide, and seven feet high. Inside the box, which was exposed to the hot sun, the temperature rose well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, or 30 degrees Celsius, for those of you on the metric scale. The box had almost no ventilation. The only air openings were four small holes, each about one inch wide. As night fell, the guards could hear the men screaming, first that they could not breathe, and then yelling that some had fallen unconscious. The guards ignored the screaming, which they considered routine behavior of prisoners, and to be a prison guard, eventually you become a sadist. But then they heard the men say that one of them had died. At that point, the guards opened the box, had the dead man hauled out, then locked it up again. And you'd think there had to be a better way to make a living in 1913 Texas than being a prison guard. Only in the morning did they discover that seven more men in the box had also died during the night. In the investigation that followed, the four surviving inmates testified that they had managed to stay alive only by each of them, getting their faces close enough to one of the tiny air holes in the box. The guards were charged with negligent homicide, although I would argue that there was nothing negligent about the homicide, that it was very purposeful. But a commission concluded that while the guards had exercised bad judgment, they had not actually violated any law, because as we have learned here on This Is Hell, the law and justice are not always the same thing. The same Texas prison farm, now expanded and known as the Beaufort Jester Complex, is still in operation today. I don't know how they got the word Jester in the middle of that title, but they did, and hey, at least they did change the name. 
It was the very least they could do, and they did the very least they could do. In Rotten History, September 11th, 1990, 31 years ago, this Saturday, the Guatemalan anthropologist and journalist Myrna Mac Chang stepped outside her office in Guatemala City and was immediately ambushed and stabbed to death by several members of a military death squad, at least two of whom had trained at the notorious School of the Americas at Fort Benning, Georgia, in the United States. And don't count on anyone remembering that 9-11, this 9-11. Against the background of the Guatemalan Civil War, Myrna Mack had been targeted by the right-wing military government because in the course of her fieldwork in that country's Mayan highlands, she had become intimately familiar with the government's effort to eradicate leftist rebels who enjoyed the support of Mayan and Ladino peasants. In what amounted to a genocide, the Guatemalan military destroyed some 440 villages, killed or disappeared an estimated two hundred thousand people and displaced another million from their homes because that's what capitalism does when collectivism rises up against it. Myrna Mack had transitioned from strictly scientific work to human rights activism, founding an organization that had gathered and published massive documentation of the extrajudicial tortures and assassinations perpetrated by the Guatemalan government with the support from the United States. After she was murdered, her sister Helen Mack brought her case, brought her sister's case to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights in Costa Rica, which tried three of her alleged assassins, but managed to convict only one of them. And then there's the U.S.-backed coup d'etat in Chile that put Augusto Pinochet in power and also led to the killing of thousands of alleged leftists by another U.S.-backed military and its death squads. But hey, there's only one 9-11 that matters, and it's not either of the 9-11s that the United States perpetrated, like the one in Chile or the one in Guatemala. You know, we're only cons- concerned about the 9-11s where the United States is the victim, not where the United States victimizes the rest of the world. That's Rotten History, and this is how Egon, who is on tomorrow's show, Wednesday show, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. Chuck, tomorrow we've got Joseph Bernstein, and he'll be talking about his Harper's cover story, Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. Finally, on the very day that we will not be having our 25th listener, 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, until our 26th anniversary next year on July 23rd, the very day that we announced that we will not be having that party, we received in the mail the first piece of art for the now rescheduled art show. Yes, we already had artists sending us art before we canceled the 25th anniversary listener appreciation party and art show, and it's what the artist Brian Rundell calls a butt demon skateboard, which was inspired by the phrase that we play at the close of our sh- of each and every one of our shows from the late great musician Wesley Willis when he says, "A demon is on my butt." Brian Rundell writes, "Dear Chuck, happy 25th anniversary." I've only been a listener for a few short years, but in that time, I've really grown attached to this work you do. 
I can't even conceive of how much time and energy goes into your shows. You put out so much awesome content, but your commitment to the craft and the living of your values through that craft is something beautiful and rare in this world, and it inspires me deeply. Assuming this package, the art that he sent, makes it in one piece, the painting is a gift to you. But I understand my style is not everyone's style. It may not be something you'd like to hang on your wall. So if you'd like to sell it on or use it in any other way to raise funds or support the show, I'm all about that too. It's yours to do with as you wish. In solidarity and thanks, Brian Rindell. Brian, this is an absolutely stunning piece of art and you can see it right now by going to our Facebook page for the announcement for today's show. We included four images of the skateboard and it is absolutely amazing. When it arrived at the bar last Thursday, everyone's jaw dropped. All the people who were drinking over there. And it's a a tough crowd art-wise downstairs but to a person, every single one of them absolutely loved your painting. I also showed off pictures of the Butt Demon skateboard at the wedding that I was officiating. Everybody thought it was very cool, but in retrospect, that seems kind of like an odd thing that the person marrying the couple would be showing off pictures of a Butt Demon skateboard right before a wedding. So yeah, that is weird. My apologies to my niece. Check out Brian Rindell's Butt Demon skateboard at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and see a lot of Brian's work on Instagram and Twitter at Brian DePlume. That's Brian D-E-P-L-U-M-E. Thanks to Bree Busk for being our guest today. Thanks for being patient with our technical difficulties. Thanks to Egon Shealy for doing a damn good job of rescuing and saving that interview. Also, thanks to Alexander Jerry for booking today's guest. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is cherries. There's only one way to get over... Oh, no, I'm not doing that. That's not till tomorrow. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>